0: We are turning our attention again this morning to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to ask you to join me there. We're looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 16 this morning, and uh, you might have noticed uh, over the last few weeks, or if you've read Romans 8 recently, you might have noticed that uh, Romans 8 talks an awful lot about the Holy Spirit. All through Romans, uh, all through Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, what it means to walk by the Spirit, what it means to have your mind set on the things of the Spirit, uh, how the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. This morning, we're going to see Paul talk about what it means to uh, live by the Spirit, to uh, be led by the Spirit to um, even have our prayers shaped by the work of the Spirit. And uh, as I was thinking about that, it it made me think back to um, when I was in college, and Sarah and I had some very strange and challenging experiences uh, related to how people understand the Holy Spirit. So I had grown up in a Baptist church my whole life, And Sarah had grown up in Methodist church and Bible church. And um, we got to college. We met people and did ministry with people from all different kinds of church backgrounds. Um, And some of those uh, challenged us in some really good ways. And some of those uh, just kind of disturbed us, to be honest. Um, and, and we really struggled. I mean, I remember talking to my pastor about some of these things. Um, and we really struggled and wrestled with some of those things. Because um, here's, I'm going to overgeneralize uh, a bit, but I, but I think you'll know where I'm coming from. Why does it seem like most of the people who talk a lot about the Holy Spirit talk about him doing things that seem foreign to the rest of us. They don't seem to be talking about like our normal Christian lives. They talk about the Holy Spirit. They're talking about things that seem strange and unusual. And like, I don't know that I know anybody who's ever experienced that kind of thing. And sometimes even things you're like, I don't remember ever seeing anything like that in the Bible. And some of them are talking about biblical things, but some of them, you get, you know, some of them are like way out there, right? Um, so on the one hand, you've got people who seem to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit and and paint a picture of the Christian life that is really different from what most of the Christians we know experience. Um, but then on the other hand, the rest of us don't talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. And we don't really have a good grasp of what the Holy Spirit is doing or how we can be aware of the holy spirit 's presence in our life or what he 's supposed to be doing, or that kind of thing All right, so uh, so let me just give you give you one example from my experience in college, not one of the more extreme ones, but just one that I remember quite distinctly. Um, I remember um, being at a prayer meeting. Um, And the leader of this prayer meeting um, said, he he quoted from John chapter 10 where it says, you know, uh, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, right? And they know my voice and they listen to me and they follow me. And so he said, um, I don't want you to leave this room until you have heard the voice of Jesus telling you that it's okay for you to leave this prayer meeting now some people probably just thought whatever (laughs) you know and I'm going to leave but um, if you're you know introspective and not terribly mature in your faith yet you get paralyzed by stuff like that Um, and that that was the category I fell in Um, and so I really wrestled with some of those things and, and and later realized, okay, what Jesus means is not like, did I hear an audible voice in this really specific scenario that somebody else told me I ought to hear it in? What Jesus means is, do you listen to my teaching? Do you listen to the Bible? Do you, do you recognize in the scriptures, my voice and me telling you what to say? And, and yes, sometimes, you know, um, The Holy Spirit is going to bring to mind passages of Scripture, things you heard from the Bible, and and apply them in a particular moment to something you should do. But the main thing is, just are are you listening to the Scripture? That's where you hear the voice of Jesus. And some people don't hear it there because they don't believe Him. But if you belong to Him, you're going to recognize that word is His voice. Um, So what do we do, what do we think when we encounter teaching about the Holy Spirit that seems very foreign to us? Um, And what do we do when encountering that teaching about the Holy Spirit makes us realize maybe we don't know as much about the Holy Spirit as we should? Because if we don't know what the Bible does say about the Holy Spirit and His work, then when somebody on the more extreme side of things says... Here's what it looks like if the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. Then you start to wonder, "Am I missing something? Like, have I a, 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 do I not have the Holy Spirit? Have I not? Am I? A, am I? You know, quenching the Spirit? Am I closing off myself to the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, and, and that can start to create all kinds of doubts and confusion and and whatnot. So. What I want us to do in part in looking at Romans chapter 8 this morning is is try to help us see some of what the Bible says that the Holy Spirit does do in our life. And even though it is in some sense still um, mystical or mysterious, it is also very practical. Uh, It's not way out there, you know, really rare experiences uh, and some biblical experiences are rare. So just because they're rare doesn't mean they're unbiblical. But what does normal, spirit-filled Christian living look like? What is the Holy Spirit supposed to be doing in our life on a daily basis that I can look at my life or my friend's life and see, yes, the Holy Spirit is at work. That's what I want us to kind of get our minds around this morning. So Paul's going to give us some of that in Romans eight twelve to 16. So let me read those few verses for us. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, that's where we're going to stop this morning. So, Paul has been saying... Just to get get our context here, Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 8 that everyone who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins have been paid for. There's no condemnation for us. The Spirit has come to live inside of us, and he's set us free from the power of sin and death. Doesn't mean we never sin anymore. Doesn't mean our bodies won't die. But we are no longer under the dominion of sin, and death is not going to have the last word for us. Jesus and the Spirit have set us free from all that. And he said that now that we have the Spirit inside of us, we are actually able to fulfill the law that we were not able to fulfill before we had the Holy Spirit, before we had been saved. And the reason why is because everyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit is still stuck in the flesh, that sinful nature that we all come into this world with. We're all broken and Um, under the power of sin from the beginning because of Adam and Eve's sin. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you haven't been saved, then you're living in the flesh. Your mind is set on the things of the flesh. You are, by nature, hostile to God and unable to submit to God or do what He says. It's not possible. But He says, but if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You're now a new creation. You're a new person. You have new desires, new loves, new ways of living. And so now you have uh, not only the ability to fulfill the law as you walk by the Spirit, but you also have hope beyond death and the grave because the God who raised Jesus from the dead, it's His Spirit, the Spirit of God, who lives inside of you, and so though your mortal body is going to die, the same Spirit of God God, who dwells in you, uh, is going to raise you from the dead, just like God raised Jesus from the dead, and you will receive a resurrected, immortal body so that you can experience eternal life in the presence of God in a new creation. So, if you have the Holy Spirit, right, then you not only have been made new in the present, you have hope for the future. So Paul says in verse 12, after this contrast between the flesh and the spirit, so he says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything, in other words. You're no longer under the power of the flesh, right? You're no longer uh, living by default according to the flesh, but we all know by experience your flesh is still there. Uh, that that, uh, part of you that whispers temptations, that part of you that tries to stoke those sinful desires that you're trying to tamp down, that part of you that is always leading you astray, that part of us that Paul was talking about in Romans 7 where he was so conflicted and often not doing the, the very things he wanted to do, he was doing the things he hated. Why? Because his flesh was still present trying to lure him away. And so Paul says, you need to know and get it in your mind that you don't owe your flesh, you don't owe your sinful nature anything. And it's important to know that because your flesh will try to persuade you that you do owe it something. Your flesh will say to you things like, you know, it's been a long time since you've given into that temptation. That used to be a part of who you were. We used to have a good time doing that. It's been a long time. I know you don't want to go all the way back to where you were before, but don't you think a little indulgence for old times sake wouldn't be such a bad thing? Don't you think I mean, I know you don't want your life to be dominated by that anymore, but a little bit wouldn't hurt, right? What Paul is saying is, There are no circumstances under which you are required to say yes to those things. You you do not owe your flesh anything. You should see it not as a friend, but as an enemy. You should try to choke it, kill it, starve it, give it no quarter. It is hostile towards you. It is trying to kill you, and so you are going to have to try to kill it. Right? So you don't owe your flesh anything. And if it's important for you to know that because Paul says in verse 13 that if you live according to the flesh, that will mean your death. Right? He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And it doesn't just mean you're going to die physically because that's true anyway. If you live according to the flesh, you will experience the second death. Right? The death of Judgment after your body has physically died, God will condemn all those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. He'll condemn them to a second death that they have brought upon themselves. And Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, that's what's going to happen to you. You cannot say, Well, now I'm a Christian, now I'm a Christian, and I have the Holy Spirit, and so. I can live however I want, and it's going to be okay. Nowhere does the Bible say that. Nowhere does the Bible say that once you get saved, it doesn't matter how you live. You know you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't say that. It says that if you are saved, you will go to heaven. You will get to be in God's presence, and nothing can take that away from you. But it also says there are people who say that they're saved who are not saved and they prove they're not saved by the way that they live. And so we find statements all over the place, like this one in verse 13, where Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Or Ephesians 5.5, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or Galatians 5:21, where after Paul lists the works of the flesh, he says, "I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." And First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he does not mean that if you've ever committed those sins, they permanent dis- permanently disqualify you from sharing in God's kingdom, from going to heaven. He does not say that because the next thing he says in 1 Corinthians 6 is and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, you can be forgiven, you can be saved, but what Paul is saying is, if you continue to live in those sins, if those sins continue to dominate your life, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom. It doesn't mean you can never fall prey to them. It doesn't mean, like, for example, it doesn't mean that a Christian could never commit adultery. You could. But if you're a Christian, you will repent at some point. But if you claim to be a Christian and you continue to live a life of drunkenness or sexual immorality or whatever, year after year after year after year, that's just not how it works. That's just, that, that's, the Bible gives that person no assurance that they have any reason to be confident that they're going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the trouble with texts like that is if you have a really sensitive conscience, you immediately begin to think, what if that's talking about me? Right, so, so let me be really clear, right? This is not saying That if you ever sin, or even if there's a particular sin you struggle with, you know, that this means you're not... This is talking about if your life is dominated by the flesh, you have no reason to be confident that you're going to go to heaven. But if you struggle with these things, that's not the same thing. If you're resisting them, that's not not what Paul's talking about. Look what he says next. So he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if instead of letting your life be dominated by the sins of the flesh, if instead you are fighting against those sins by the power of the Spirit, trying to kill them, trying to be rid of them, that is evidence that you do belong to Jesus. Right, that you are saved. That you do have reason for assurance. Because God is at work in you, enabling you to fight against those sins and to put them to death. Paul talks about this in uh, Colossians 3, verse 5-8. through 8. He says, "...put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." In these, you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Putting to death, putting away, those mean the same thing. Paul says you're trying to get these things out of your life. Right? Now, it's a battle. It's a conflict. It's an ongoing thing. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that all those things go away immediately. It doesn't mean... Although sometimes we hear people tell testimonies where they say, you know, I used to be an alcoholic, I met Jesus, and I've never wanted another drink again. Those are fantastic testimonies, but that's not how it always works. There are also really good testimonies where they say, I was an alcoholic, I met Jesus, and I have been determined to be sober ever since then. I have not done it perfectly but God has sustained me, and when I have failed, he has forgiven me and helped me get back up. And he has kept me following Jesus despite my failures, and he really has made me new. I'm not the person who I once was, but I haven't shaken it all yet. I haven't gotten rid of, I have to every day say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And that is something that you are enabled to do by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is putting sin to death, or putting away from you certain sins, that is an evidence of the Spirit being at work in your life. It's not super glamorous, it's not really flashy and showy, but it is a real, tangible evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life when you are resisting and ridding yourself of sin that used to entangle you, that used to dominate you. I th- think about it like this <clears throat> imagine that you went off to college and you were assigned uh, a roommate somebody you'd never met before, and uh when you meet this person, he tells you that he's uh he's an athlete and he's on the he's on the college football team hmm. okay well great so that's pretty impressive right so you're looking forward to you know maybe. Maybe some free football tickets or, you know, getting some kind of insider tips about how all this works, whatever. And you start observing your roommate and you realize he never goes to practice. He never goes to games. He doesn't eat like an athlete. He's always eating junk. He doesn't take care of his body very well. He doesn't sleep when he's supposed to. And uh, after a while, what do you start to think? guy's not a football player. He's not an athlete. He'd say he is, but he's obviously not. There's nothing about his life that makes it look like he's an athlete. All right, so what if you meet somebody who says they're a Christian, but they never go to church, you never see them open their Bible, you never hear them say anything about praying about anything, they don't ever seem to hang out with other Christians or want to be around other Christians, and their life is dominated by things that you know are sinful and unbiblical, and it doesn't seem to bother them. You're going to say, I don't think that person is really a Christian. They say they are, but there's nothing about their life that makes me think they're really saved. If, on the other hand, you meet somebody who claims to be a Christian, and they do like to go to church, and even when they don't feel like it, they make themselves go to church, and you see them read their Bible, and you hear them talk about praying over things or, you know, asking God for things, and they're not perfect. You hear, you've heard them say and do some things you know they shouldn't have done, but often when they do that, they end up apologizing. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. That was, it's not the kind of person I want to be. That's, you know, uh, they ask your forgiveness for things, you know, uh, and, Again, they're not perfect, but you can see them changing. You can see them growing. You can tell the trajectory of their life is towards the right things. What are you going to think about that person? I think they're the real deal. Right? That's what these verses are helping us to, to sort out. Right? If, you, if, if someone continues to let their lives be dominated by the flesh, it makes you wonder if the Spirit is there at all. But if you are resisting the flesh and if you, when you fail, you ask God for forgiveness and you you try to get back on the right track, if you are pushing back that darkness in your life, you're trying to put those things away from you, you're trying to kill uh, those things that used to have a hold on you, how does that happen? That happens by the work of the Spirit. Now, here's where I think this gets really interesting. Look at verse 14. Paul explains why he can say that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, you will have eternal life in the presence of God. Why can he say that? Because, he says, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, here's what I want you to see. What does he mean when he says... All who are led by the Spirit of God. Who are those people and what are they doing? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? If I just had thrown that phrase out at the very beginning and said, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? I suspect that what most of us would think would be people who are, you know, really sensitive to promptings from the Holy Spirit to talk to this person or go to this place or or do this particular thing, that you're being led sort of moment by moment to do these specific things by the Spirit. That's at least the kind of thing that I that's you know what I I don't know, where I picked that up. But years ago, that's kinda that's how I thought about it, right? That it means, you know, well, where does the Holy Spirit want me to, you know, eat dinner? I mean, literally, you know, like it's what if I gotta meet a certain person if I go here or there or whatever. That is the furthest thing from Paul's mind in this passage. He's not talking about anything like that. What does he mean here when he says there are people who are led by the Spirit of God and those people are sons of God? He's talking about the same people he was talking about in verse 13. The people who are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, the people who are enabled by the Holy Spirit to resist sin and temptation, to fight it and try to get rid of it from their lives, those are the people who are being led by the Spirit. It's not a terribly mystical thing. Now, there are occasions where things like that do happen in the Bible. Like in Acts 16, Paul's on one of his missionary journeys, trying to figure out where to go next, tries to go one place, and the Holy Spirit says, "Uh uh-uh, not over there. He tries to go somewhere else, and the Holy Spirit says, nope, not talking about there. And then he has a dream, right, about a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us, and he says, okay, that's where God wants me to go. So I'm not saying this kind of thing never happens. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit never prompts us to go a certain place or do a certain thing. What I am saying is, that's not, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that's A daily, normal reality for Christians. And if you get the impression that that ought to be a daily, normal reality for Christians, you can get distracted from what ought to be a daily, normal reality for Christians. The Holy Spirit is not really terribly concerned about where you go to eat lunch tomorrow. But He is really concerned about what you do with the temptations you're going to face tomorrow. He is concerned about the sins that are trying to creep back into your life that you're trying to beat back and whether or not you're going to keep beating them back tomorrow or not. You are led by the Spirit if you are resisting the flesh. Right? Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. So all who are led by the Spirit... And the way we know they're led by the Spirit is they're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and they're putting to death the works of the flesh, like sexual immorality and idolatry and greed and covetousness and all those things. That's how you know someone's being led by the Spirit. And he says, if that's you, all who are led by the Spirit of God to resist sin and fight against sin, those people are sons of God. Those people are children of God. Those people belong to God. Well, how do I know if that's me? Is there any other evidence because I you know sometimes I feel like i'm doing pretty good fighting against the flesh, and sometimes I feel like i'm really not right sometimes I feel like man, this is you know this is pretty easy. I feel like i'm growing and feel like i'm being sanctified and feel like you know i'm really doing pretty good all the things God wants me to do, and this is great and then Maybe nothing even happens. You just ch- sort of change your perspective and you're like, I don't feel like I'm doing anything well. I don't feel like I've succeeded in any of these things. What am I supposed to be doing? How do I know that I belong to God? What does it mean to be a son of God? How do I know that I'm his child? That's verse 15 and 16. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. <clears throat> now, here's what Paul is saying here. I'm gonna paraphrase it, but this is this is what I think he's trying to get us at, get us to. How do you know if you're a child of God? One of the ways you know is this when you are desperate, when you are in trouble, when you are in need, where do you go? If you go, even in your darkest hours, if you go to God, your reflex, right? Your instinct, so to speak, is to say, God, help me. God, I'm in a mess. What is wrong with me? God, deliver me. I need grace. I need mercy. Abba, Father, where are you? That's evidence that the Holy Spirit's inside of you. That is evidence that you are a child of God. You're not wondering, although there are moments where we do this too, right? But you're not wondering, does God care about me in this mess? You know that he does. You know that, he can, that you can go to him, that you can call out to him, that he's going to hear you. You have this, this certain um, confidence uh, in you that you know you can call him father. You don't have to, you don't have to wonder whether or not he's going to listen to you. Right? And, and where does that come from from? Verse 16 says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. Now that's another place I feel like it's really easy to get sort of lost in trying to figure out what that means. You know, what does it mean that the Spirit bears witness with our Spirit that we're children of God? Is that some kind of voice I need to listen to? Is that some kind of, you know, thing I'm going to hear internally the Holy Spirit saying? Maybe. But that's pretty subjective. And so sometimes even if the Spirit is saying, yeah, you are children of God, you are a child of God, that there might be another voice in there saying, no, you're not. And you're trying to sort out like which one is the Holy Spirit and Which one is me or which one is something else? And how do I know which one to listen to? How do I sort that out? You sort that out with verse 15. Because the outflow of the spirit bearing witness with your spirit, that you're children of God, is that you call God Father. That there's, again, not not that you never doubt this either, but... Looking at the big picture of your life, that there is a sense in which you know where to go. You know where to go when you're in trouble. You know where to go when you've sinned. You know who you can call upon when you don't feel like you can call upon anybody else. I mean, when did Jesus say Abba Father? In his darkest moments. Right? In his darkest moments. Even when everything else was falling apart according to plan, but nonetheless in a terrifying way, you know, the things that he was going to have to experience, he still cried, Abba, Father. And I think what Paul is saying is that you don't, look, you have not received a spirit that makes you draw back from God in fear, that brings you back into slavery To sin, where you feel like you can't get free and you can't come to God, you have received the the Spirit who enables you to cry out to God as your Father. So, when we think about what it means to have the Holy Spirit in us, what what it means to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to have a life that is governed and dominated by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can do some amazing things, some supernatural things, right? Just read the book of Acts, right? The, the Holy Spirit can do some unusual things. But they're unusual. They're not normal. They're not everyday kinds of things, right? Uh, what are the everyday things that the Holy Spirit helps us do? He helps us pray. He helps us resist sin and temptation. He helps us love people. He helps us have self-control. He helps us be patient. He helps us say no for the thousandth time to that thing we used to do all the time that now we try not to do ever, though occasionally we get caught in a weak moment and we do give in. The fact that we don't give in all the time anymore, that's because of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we're led by the Spirit? How do we know that we're sons of God? Because of these things because of the spirit's daily nitty-gritty work in our life drawing us back to God in prayer helping us resist temptation help us to walk as Jesus walked imperfectly with our doubts with our fears with our foibles right with our uncertainties but with tangible everyday evidence I'm here I'm here that's why you can, wherever you are, whatever you've done, say, "Father, help me." Father, forgive me. Father, I'm a mess. That's why you can. Um, that's why you can say to temptation, "That's not the kind of person I want to be anymore." And I know you got me last time, but you're not getting me this time, because that's not who I am anymore. When you're able to say those things, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit's work in your life. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit and governed by the Spirit.